Good morning, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Uh, really a joy to worship with y'all. On that last song, I'll, I'll admit I stopped singing. I kind of looked around. It is fun to just listen to the, the people of God sing that song, and it's, it, it's a blessing. So um, we are in our second week of a three- or four-week series on disciple-making. Uh, we do it every August. We exist as a church to glorify God by making disciples who transform the world. Um, if y'all can scoot in real quick, we've got people standing in the back. And, um, and by the way, just before we get going, um, we're, we're getting back into the school year, and, and we, we're going to be busier next week than we are this week. And so uh, if any of y'all can come to the 5 o'clock, that would be super. Uh, just <laughs> throwing that out there. Um, I don't know if we've said that before or not, but, you know, I just thought it it's worth repeating. Um, second week of a, a series on disciple making, and hopefully this is just a recasting of vision for Grace Bible Church. We, we've been at it for 20 years now, and we want to do better and better at it, and, and that takes the people of God really embracing this. So uh, we are looking at Ephesians chapter 4. It is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I'm fired up to preach it. Uh, last in the last service, I, I think I was nervous to preach it because I, I have such a high regard for it that I, I was trying to make everything perfect, which is ridiculous. Let me pray, and, and we'll jump right into it. Lord, we do need you. We need you so much, God. Father, for, for those of us who don't fully live in an awareness of our need of you, I, I pray that you'd give us conviction by your Spirit uh, that, that we have no hope without you and that we have every hope with you. Father, help us to live um, under your authority in, in the freedom that you have given us because of the gospel. I pray that we would enjoy you in this time studying, and I pray that as a result of this time studying Ephesians 4, we would enjoy you all the more as, as we go out into the world to do your will. Uh, we love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you all ever noticed how vastly different churches are one from another like seriously you think about it we are worshiping the same god we believe in the same savior and yet churches if you, if you go to any number of churches in town you can get a vastly different expression and like the thing that we see the most in in that vast difference is is what is on the outside you, you see like Worship styles differ quite a bit. You see preaching styles differ quite a bit. Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll see like the garb that the, the professional Christians wear uh, can differ. Some people wear like really nice suits, um, not here. Some people wear like robes and, and definitely not here. And like my fashion thought when I get up on Sundays is just try to be hygienic. Like literally, <laughs> just don't smell bad. A lot of the things that you see on, on the outside are, are kind of like the outward layers of an onion, honestly. Like if, if you start peeling back the onion and, and the expression, you're, you're going to get down to, to the core of the onion, and ultimately the question that, is, that has to be answered by every church is for what purpose does this church exist? Like that, that is the most fundamental question that, that should drive ultimately our outward expressions. For what purpose does this church exist? I just want you to know 
that Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 defines the answer to that question, I think, more than any other passage in the Bible for us. So if, if you want to understand what Grace Bible Church is about, this is what Grace Bible Church is about right here. So let's, without further ado, get into it. I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of a context. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 talks about the basis for our unity. It's all the things that we agree on, verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 10, really it's complicated. It's a quotation in part of of Psalm 68, and, and it, it's talking about a preeminent Jesus who, who has ascended to the right hand of God, and he, he has taken captives with us, and we're actually the captives, and, and he has given gifts to people, okay? So there's, there's unity, and then there's diversity because he's given different gifts to different people. So that's verses 7 through 10. And then that leads us to, to verse 11, that the same God who has given gifts to different people Verse 11, and he gave, in addition to the gifts to different people, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, and the teachers. So Jesus, who is this exalted king, didn't just give us gifts, individual gifts. He gives gifted people who fill these offices in the church, and it's apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. There, there's, there's five offices within the church that, that God has given gifted men to fill. Let's just go through those real quick because we're going to break them down and it's going to go quick. The, the shepherd teacher, we're going to start at the, at the end of that list and work backwards. So apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd teacher. Shepherd teacher, kind of the same person. If, if you look in the Greek, it's almost like there's a hyphen there. The, the shepherd teacher is the pastor. You know, a pastor literally means a shepherd. Like, I'm a shepherd. Like, I tend sheep. I'm not going to say what that says about you, but <laughs> that should inform how I think about my job. I, I'm a shepherd. I, I'm supposed to protect and care for God's people, the flock, by teaching them the Word of God. So pastor, shepherd, teacher, teaching the Word of God. I protect and care for God's people by teaching the word of God. And then there's the evangelist. The evangelist is anyone who goes out from the church so as to share the gospel, not just like the plan of salvation that we might escape hell and go to heaven. That was last week's sermon. But, but like this big gospel, this, this gospel that says that the king of heaven has come near and his kingdom has come with him. And, and he is inviting us into participation. And it's this great rescue mission. And we've all been included. So the redeemed proclaim redemption. And that's what Jesus has invited us into. The evangelist goes out to the lost to proclaim that. And I think sometimes when you hear the word evangelist, you think like somebody in like a sky blue leisure suit with impossibly big hair and like someone who's kind of loud and flashy and like wears a lot of jewelry and stuff. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter four. I really don't. I, I think what he's talking about here is probably more what we think of as like a missionary, someone who's going out and, and like to people who just haven't heard the gospel yet. And then as you're working backwards, that leads us to the office of apostle and prophet. The office of apostle and the office of prophet were foundational to the early church. If you look at Ephesians 2.20 and 3.5, you're, you're going to see that they were foundational to the early church. They, they're so critically important. I don't think that office 
still exists today. The office of apostle, the office of prophet. Now, I, I think there are gifts of apostleship. I, that is like basically the, the spiritual equivalent of an entrepreneur, Some, someone who goes out and creates ministries and starts ministries. That's apostle. Apostle literally means sent one. And so apostleship as a gift still exists, but the office of apostle doesn't. Same thing with prophecy. Pro, you know, to, to be prophetically gifted today isn't to foretell the future. It's to say, here's how the Bible applies to your situation. That's, that's what most of the Old Testament prophets did. Again, I'm for the gifts. I don't think the offices exist today. I, I'll, I'll tell you the reason I tell you this. Every once in a while, you'll run into people in Houston, Texas, and Dallas, Texas, seems like they're everywhere in Dallas. Um, <laughs> Southern California is the other hotbed. Like the, the best and worst of Christianity is in Dallas, Texas, and Southern California. You get that for free. I'm not kidding. But every once in a while, you, you'll run into someone who is a modern-day apostle, a self-proclaimed modern-day apostle here, here in Houston. I, I love you. I tell you this not because I hate them. I tell you this because I love you. Avoid those people. I, I don't buy it. They, they are generally saying, by saying that they are modern-day apostles, that their words are on par with Scripture. That's, that's the presumption that they speak without error. I mean, there's all sorts of very strange things. They are giving new revelation. I like All of that is bad. They'll talk about apostolic succession where they can confer the gift of apostleship on different people. Like, weird stuff. I don't buy it at all. I love you. Stay away from them. That's it. Gifted people, sure. So, you know, those gifts exist. Offices don't, don't like it. Let's move on. We've just really set the stage. That's all we've done so far. Here's the question that we're going to ask today, and I think it's a critically important question. I love this passage because it gives us an answer. Why did God create those five offices within the church? Why, why did God give apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers? Why, why, did, why did he create those offices within the church? Look at verses 11 through 13. And he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers, here's the answer, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the knowledge of the Son of God. I'm sorry, to the fullness of Christ. Missed the line. Y'all didn't even notice. That's scary. We're answering the question, why did God create these offices within the church? Did the text say that apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are supposed to do the work of ministry. I, I mean it. It didn't say that, did it? Not at all. Now, the reason I want to point that out is because most churches in the United States of America absolutely believe that you pay me so that I might do the work of ministry specifically to you, meaning 
I'm the one who does the ministry, and you're the ones who consume whatever it is that I do. You become consumers and passive, and I am the one who is active in ministry. That is the model that has grown out of a consumeristic culture in the United States of America today, and it is absolutely in contrast to what this passage just said. Apostles, sorry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers exist to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what it says. It's not that they would do the work of ministry, it's they would equip the saints for the work of ministry. The reason I think this is really important, y'all, is we started Grace Bible Church about 20 years ago. It'll be 20 years at the end of September, so about, about a month from now, 20 year anniversary, kind of a fun deal. Here's my point. I have not spent one week of the last 20 years where I have not tried to overcome the misconception that exists in the American church that it is my job to do the ministry and it is your job to be a bottom-sucking suckerfish in the aquarium of Christianity. That's the point. And it's misunderstanding this text that gets you into bottom-sucking fish category. I'm, I'm not kidding you. It, it is the thing that robs God of glory in the American church generally, and if we don't fight it, it robs God of glory here. My job is to equip you. The question is, what does the word equip mean? My job, and it's not just my job, it's, it's Daniel's job, it's, it's Wes's job, Hayden, Cole, James, Travis, Michael, Rennell, I mean, our, our whole staff, our, our whole elder board, I mean, like, everybody, it's, it's our job to equip you. And, and literally, to equip is to make fully ready. So our job is to make you fully ready. This, this word equip, I, w- I want to dig in a little bit on it. It's actually related to a word that Hayden Podcotter spoke of about three or four weeks ago when, when Hayden preached. He, he did a fine job in his sermon, and, and he talked about this word, or, or a word that is directly related to this word equip, and, and he talked about mending nets. I don't know if you remember this or not, but there's this word in Greek, and it's talking about mending nets. And, and mending nets is related to my job, which is to equip you. Now, now, how is mending nets and equipping you related? That's, that's the question you should be asking. Here's how I'll answer it. Why, if you're a fisherman, do you mend your nets? That's not that hard. Why, if you're a fisherman, would you need to mend your nets? Well, because your nets have gotten holy. Now, there's obviously some holes in nets so that water can pass through, but if the holes get too big, the fish pass through, and that's a problem. In fact, the net is meant, it's designed, it's created so that fish wouldn't pass through, but, but when they get really holy, all the fish pass through, and the net doesn't exist for the purpose for which the net was created. And so you mend them, you, you shore them up, you restore them, you bring them back to wholeness, you, you enable them to function again as they were designed to function. That's my job. That's the pastoral staff's job. It is to restore, to make whole, so that we can enjoy the purpose for which God created us. Our, Our job is to make you fully ready. 
It's to restore you. It's to make you, you whole. For what? For the work of ministry. Now, before we get into the word ministry, let's talk about the word work. It's the word ergon, where, where, where we get the word ergonomical. It means work. So what I want you to know is that what I am designed to equip you, what my, my goal is to equip you, and, and I'm equipping you so that you can work. I hope ministry is a ton of fun. I really do. I think nine times out of ten, it is a ton of fun. I hope that ministry is incredibly fulfilling. I mean, like, it should be incredibly fulfilling. I want to be upfront with you. It's work. It's going to take effort. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take getting up early in the morning so you can pray for the people that you're investing in. It's going to take taking a phone call at 11 or 12 or 1 a.m. in the morning because the person you're investing in doesn't have anyone else to call, and they've got to call somebody, and you've got to answer the phone. That's what it takes. It's, it's work. It's hard. I get that it's hard. I also think it's where you get whole. It's, it's where life is lived when nets are mended. It's work. What type of work? Well, it's the work of ministry. Work of ministry. Now, if, if you're reading your Bible and it's a different Bible than the ESV, it might say the work of service. So my job is to equip you, the saints of God, for, for the work of ministry, or it might say the work of service. Here's the deal. They're both great because ministry is service. Service is ministry. Same, same. There, there's, there's no difference. The, the Greek word that can be translated ministry or service literally means in the dust laboring. That is such a good picture of what we are trying to equip you to do. We are trying to equip you to do the work of in the dust laboring. Hey, what a beautiful, straightforward expression of what we're calling you to do, equipping you for the work of in the dust laboring. It is us mending nets. It is us, by God's gracious enabling, helping you become whole again. It's the purpose for which you were designed. It really is. I, I 100% believe it. Don't think that hedonism is going to make you whole. It's not. Ministry is going to make you whole. Ministry is where your soul is going to come alive. I, I'm banking everything on that truth. You know, like, think about the word whole for a second, if you would. Like, I think our culture is infatuated with wholeness, isn't it? Like, you don't even have to be a Christian. Everyone loves the idea, the concept of being made whole again. I, I can prove this. There is a grocery store called Whole Foods. We love whole so much that we can put it on the front end of the name of a grocery store and mark everything up 75% and you'll still buy it because it's supposed to make you whole. Like I, I, whole paycheck. That's what we're talking about. Not, anyway, we, are, we love whole. Whole 30. Whole 30 is another example. First of all, misnomer, right? It's not 30 days. Whole 30 is not 30 days. Whole 30 is 45, 48 days. You eat like a rabbit <laughs> because you're trying to get whole. I'm pro whole 30. I am. I've done it three times. I'll do it a fourth time. I'm, I'm for it. The point is our whole society is 
consumed with wholeness, and we think we'll get it by food or discipline or, or an exercise program or a CrossFit or whatever it is. And God said, it comes from in the dust, laboring. That's where it comes from. If, if that's what you're seeking, the God who created you said, that is where you'll find it, in the dust, in the dust. Maybe you're sitting here wondering if, if this whole thing, like my diatribe on in the dust laboring even applies to you because you know, like, you're like, I mean, I'm a kid or, or I'm, I'm too busy or I'm, you know, I'm in this profession. I'm, I'm not a professional Christian. I'm just trying to make a living. And, and besides, it says that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm not a saint, I'm a Christian. Saint is something for, for the spiritual elite. The word translated saint is hagios. It's used 65 times in the Greek New Testament to talk about Christians. Christians. Hagios means holy one, sanctified one. Hagios means set apart one. Hagios can be translated saint. Anyone who is saved. I have a lot of really devout Catholic friends. I think they're going to be in heaven. I, I, genu I'm, I'm, I'm not down on Catholics. They're absolutely wrong in this. They make sainthood about something that someone has done special, and it's, it's a title conferred posthumously, and, and like, oh, that was a saint. Look, you're all saints. If you believe in Jesus Christ... You're a saint. That, that's what the scripture very clearly says. Look it up. I, I, it's, it's not even a hard argument. It's, it's so simple. If you are saved, you're a disciple. If you're saved, you're a saint. If you're a saint, it's our job to equip you. If it's our job to equip you, it's your job to labor in the dust, to get down and dirty in the messiness of people's lives. That's, that's the job. And it's not for some of you, it's for all of you who have believed in Jesus, period. Like, you've got to believe that. That is so clearly what Scripture says, not just here, all over the pages of Scripture. To get down and dirty in the messiness of other people's lives, in other words, to make disciples. That's your job. My job is to help you get whole that you might invest in other people without worrying about your own insecurities, without worrying about your own inadequacies, with all the things that hamstring you, with all the things that make you comfortable being a consumer, and you just leave it to me, no, can't do that. It would rob you of your opportunity to participate in the kingdom and to experience God in profound, profound ways. It's for you. It, it's hard. It's messy. But that's what wholeness looks like, according to God's paradigm. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I get kind of fired up about this topic. And here's why. Look at verse 13. Our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm not going to cover everything, 
But here are two things that I think you should understand that come as a result of you, the saints of God, doing the work of God in the dust, laboring, making disciples. The saints doing the work of ministry leads to unity in the faith. Unity in the faith in this case, faith here just means the things we all agree on and we all believe. And it doesn't mean that there's going to be uniformity. We're not all going to believe the same things about all topics. But on essentials, we are going to be of the same mind. And and let me explain how I think this works. If we are all making disciples, we are all seeing God work through our efforts to, to be obedient to him, and he is working to change people. And you know what we're all starting to figure out when we do that? That God is providential, that God is kind, that God is powerful, that that God accomplishes the things that he says he will accomplish through the obedience of the saints as he calls saints to obedience. All of these things about God, we start to believe because God is consistent in all of our lives as we go out to do the work of ministry. But that's not it. There's more, much, much more. Sound like an infomercial. The saints... Doing the work of ministry leads to unity in knowing God. That's what verse 13 says. It it leads to unity in knowing God. Now, I want to drill down on this just a little bit. How many of you know Jose Altuve? Raise your hands. Okay. I'm trying to be inclusive here. How many of you know Taylor Swift? Raise your hands. Okay, so, yeah, there. Another question. How many of you know Fritz Maxwell? Right, right there. Okay, not quite as many of you, allegedly, as Jose Altuve. How many of you know Rennell Woolrich? Raise your hands. Okay. Is there a difference between knowing Jose Altuve and Taylor Swift and, and knowing Fritz Maxwell and Rennell Woolrich? There, isn't that different? Isn't the first two, like when, when you raised your hand and said, oh, I know Jose Altuve, I know Taylor Swift, like aren't most of you saying really I know of Jose Altuve and I know of Taylor Swift? Like if you really know Jose Altuve or Taylor Swift, we should talk, okay? Like that, that's something I want to know about, okay? But, but most of you, you don't know them, you know of them, right? And that, I'm not trying to deceive you or anything. I get how you say it. I'm just saying when, when the text here says that we will know God, it, it's, it's not like know of God. It, it's epigenosis. It's a Greek word, epi, which is like an intensifier, and, and gnosis, which is knowledge. And so it's a relational or experiential knowing of God. Like, I, I know Fritz. Like, we've traveled together. We eat meals together. I Mary and I spend more time at he and Amy's house than he and Amy probably like. But we hunt, I mean, we kayak, we, we do a lot. Like, I know him. I don't know Jose Altuve. Some of you know Brandon Allen or Jeremy Newsom or Carter Beckley, you know, all these guys. Like, you know them. You've spent time in their houses. That's what this is calling us to. To know the God who created the universe in a personal, an experiential way. Not, not just theologically. Like, oh, I know that there's a God who exists. I can, I can tell you all the precepts about God. I've got a systematic theology. I've got it all lined out. Have you experienced God? 
Like, have you known God like you know your best friends? If, if you're still looking for that, get in the dust. I, I promise there's no shortcuts. You, you won't know God that way by listening to me or any of the famous really good preachers. Like, it's not going to work that way. You'll know about God. Something to be said for that. But until you get out and do ministry, till you get in the dust and, and labor alongside of people and pour into people, that's where you'll experience God in a personal, experiential way. And, and that, I promise, is what you long for. Like more than anything else you're looking for, that is where you will find deep, rich satisfaction. And by the way, it's, it's not just about us knowing God. Look at verses 15 and 16. After verse 14, which we're going to talk about next week, which says that without this, you're going to be tossed to and fro, and it's, it's just going to be a helter-skelter Christian experience. Verse 15 and 16, going back to what God's design is, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Wouldn't it be cool that every part of our bodies worked perfectly in unison? How, how fun does that sound? Like, wouldn't the church as the body of Christ working fully in unison with the head be something to behold, something that is, is beautiful and wonderful, a body in, in sync with the head, like the cabeza, like the body does what the head says. If, if, the, if the head says, move your arm out to the right, you move your arm out to the right, and you don't even really think about it, you just do what the head says, and the whole body works together. There's no wasted motion. There, there's no wasted energy. Every digit is working in conjunction and under the authority of the head. Have you ever seen a world-class athlete? It's a beautiful thing, whether it's a, a ballerina or a professional football player or Roger Federer on a tennis court and just everything is no wasted motion. Everything is efficient. Everything works together. Have you ever seen someone who's a total klutz? That's not so beautiful, is it? There was a time when I lived in Mammoth Lakes, California, and, and the high school was trying to form a, a cross-country team because there was one kid, Chad Galbraith, who was a fantastic long-distance runner. And, and he couldn't compete in the California school system without being part of a team. And so they had to throw this team together of guys and girls. So they needed four guys and four girls to join this team. It's a small little high school, and everyone else was playing other sports. So they get this one girl. She's a great girl. She went to our church. She wasn't the most athletic person in our in our church or in Mammoth Lakes. And they decide, hey, we're going we're gonna to teach you how to run cross country. And, and she starts running and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to teach you how to walk. <laughs> she would literally walk in, instead of the arm like going opposite of the leg and in a counterbalancing effect, which is normal, by the way. She would walk like this. That, at very best, is distracting. 
okay? That, this is not what you want, okay? Spiritually speaking, that is not what you're shooting for, all right? But that's what she did. And so they had to teach her, look, if, if you do that, if, if you're this person, you'll know it by the time you get out in the foyer. Repent. <laughs> like, seriously, it, it will benefit you and the body of Christ in all sorts of ways. But I want you to understand something. What, what this text is ultimately saying is that if you are sitting passively and as a consumer in Christendom, if you're that bottom-sucking bottom fish that we talked about, you're walking like this, man. That, that's what it looks like. like it, it, it doesn't match what the head is telling us. It, it's goofy. It's inefficient. It, it doesn't work. I, I get that other people are doing it. That doesn't mean it's right. Like, literally, repent and live in conjunction as a efficient expression, as a beautiful expression of what the head is telling you. And the head is telling you to get into the dust and labor. That's what the head is telling you. That's what Ephesians is telling you. That's what the rest of Scripture is telling you. If you're like overwhelmed by this, and I'm, I'm telling you that if you're a Christian, you should be making disciples, and if you're not making disciples, you're, you're a rogue Christian. So if, if that's that's strong and hard, like I get it, and I'm sorry, sort of. Um, but here's the good news, okay? Everything that Scripture is asking you to do, Jesus has already enabled you to do, okay? So God, this is not a cruel joke. God is not calling you to do something that you are ill-equipped to do. In fact, the cross, and we're going to celebrate communion in a second, is, is the ultimate place where Jesus has enabled us to do what God is calling us into, okay? So his, his body was broken, which means we get the forgiveness of sins, which we, means we get the righteousness of Christ, which also means by the shed blood that a new covenant is written, which means the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We become new creations in Christ. So when, when God says, go out and make disciples, He's enabled us by the indwelling Holy Spirit to participate in that. I'm not saying you won't get better at it. You will get better. Anything you do, you're going to get better at with practice. But I promise you, God's enabled you. He's given you spiritual gifts that can be utilized for the purpose of making disciples. Okay? Like, this is not a cruel joke. God has enabled it, and he's enabled it through the cross. So, here's what I want to do. We're going to celebrate communion here. And generally speaking, what we do in communion is we say, repent of any sins that you have committed so that when you come to take the bread and the cup, you do so in a worthy manner. Don't like take this as like license to sin and uh, you know, you've kind of outwitted God. None of that. I want you to repent of sin before you take the elements. But I also want when you're preparing to take the elements, when you take the bread and the cup, maybe you're going back to the seat and waiting for everyone else to be served. I want you to think, Lord, you've changed me from the inside out. You've forgiven me and you've given me security based on the assurance that my sins are forgiven. Who would you like me to invest in? That, that I might instill in them some of the blessed truths that you have given me at the cross. I want you to ask that question. And then I want you to know that whoever comes to your mind there, 
if you go to him in obedience, I think God will show up. I really do. Just pray through that. Take some time now. Pray. Repent if you need. Think about who you might invest in as a manifestation of the new life that you have in Christ. When you hear the musicians begin to play, you'll know it's time to come forward row by row to take of the elements.